Welcome to another episode of Always Hope. I'm your host, Dr. Mario, and happy to share this episode with you today. Doesn't it seem like morality has become a bad word in our culture? Or that trying to be a good and moral person is not an ideal that we should strive for anymore? That's probably because we overly associate morality with just following the rules. But what if morality is not so much about the do's and don'ts, but rather a response to love and intentionally making decisions to help us live better? And if that's the case, well, how do we raise our kids to have a good sense of morality? That is today's topic of conversation, and joining me is Dr. Sarah Bartell, wife, mother, and moral theologian within the Archdiocese of Seattle. Dr. Bartell is a regular contributor for the Northwest Catholic Paper, co-hosts a radio program called Enduring Love, and just released her first book, A Catechism for Family Life, published by CUA Press. In today's episode, we talk about how the rich young man's questions to Jesus are key to understanding the moral life how love and secure attachment must be the foundation for any moral reasoning, trusting that as parents we are probably doing a better job than we give ourselves credit for, why some moral questions are clear and why others aren't, and the need to call for grace when making tough decisions. This is another great episode. Thanks for listening and please share this show with your friends and family and anyone who could use some encouragement in their family life. All right, let's get into it. Well, Dr. Sarah Bartell, thank you so much for joining me on the Always Hope podcast. How are you doing? I am great, and I'm so happy to be with you on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me as a guest. Well, great. Well, I think for, for the show today, um, as I was praying and thinking about what we could talk about, I, I know you have a new book coming out. We're, we're going to talk about that. Um, but I was very intrigued just by the, the certainly the concepts of the book, uh, Catechism for Family Life, uh, put out by Catholic University Press, which you co-edited with uh, Dr. John Kubrowski from CUA. Yes. Um, but the, the first question that, that I want to ask was just, uh, I know you're a moral theologian, and uh, it seems sometimes like the question of morality gets a bad rap. But uh, when I was at the seminary, a mutual friend of ours, uh, Dr. Jennifer Miller, oh. would always quote this this passage from Veritatis Splendor, uh, where she would tell the guys that the central question of the, the moral theology comes from the passage in Matthew's gospel where the rich young man um, comes to Jesus and says, Master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And, and she, would, she would say this to the seminarians, um, again, quoting John Paul II and kind of his thought there, um, because she just always wanted to couch the question of moral theology, of morality, not just about like do's and don'ts, but that really living the moral life well um, is, is about living the Christian life well. Um, so I always appreciated this perspective about that shift from just what not to do uh, to, to more what, what can I do to inherit eternal life. Uh, am I hearing that passage right? Am I hearing JP2's thoughts uh, correctly in, in that? Oh, absolutely. And Dr. Jennifer Miller, she, I love her and I love her emphasis on this um, really key passage of the rich young man, because it is really the heart of the moral life. It's the way of following Christ. If we follow Christ, then, then what does that imply for how we behave? And I've been spending a lot of time with this scripture passage, not only in my teaching over the last year for the um, deacons 
information for the diaconate for the Seattle Archdiocese, but in my own prayer life. And then it's really popped out at me when it's come up in the mass readings. And just this last week, I was again spending time praying with this and realized that this story of the, this encounter with a rich young man happens in Matthew 19, right after the um, Jesus teaching on marriage and divorce and his teaching on let the little children come to me. So I really mm. see that as having a purpose and a plan in marriage and family life that you know, marriage and family life is ordered to the procreation and education of children. So if we begin with the beginning of Matthew 19, Jesus teaching on marriage, going back to the beginning to Genesis, you know, the meaning of marriage, then, then that flourishes when we let the little children come to us in marriage. Then we have the responsibility of educating these children in the moral life, in how to follow Christ. And it's really, it's a way. It's not a set of rules or a checklist. You know, and Jesus starts there with the rich young man. He says, um, follow the commandments. And the rich young man wants to know, well, which ones? And Jesus names some commandments. And the man feels that he is lacking something, which I find is very interesting because he's rich. What could he be lacking? He's got everything. In fact, I found a great um, uh, image online that I used in my teaching, and it showed a contemporary version of a rich young man. So he's a a Middle Eastern young man, and he's got... um, you know, uh, this nice car that he's standing next to, um, a girlfriend in the car who's got a headscarf on and a couple, uh, friends hanging around him, you know, his, uh, his buddies. Um, and you know, he's got everything that we want when we look at our celebrities, right? They've got fame, beauty, um, uh, riches, like what could they be lacking? But this man feels he is lacking something and he knows Jesus has it that there's something about Jesus that's the answer to what he's missing and he wants to know what it is. So I think it's just a really compelling story, really beautiful and a lot of implications for our own um, responsibility as parents to raise our children in that relationship with Jesus so that they want to follow him and live the way that is worthy of his followers. Because he, even what Jesus says about following the commandments, he says, I, I'm doing it all. Basically, he's like, I'm, I'm following the checklist, but there's still something inside of me that isn't isn't alive. Right. Um, he's like an A plus Jew, right? He is. Right. Commandments. And how many of us can say that? Oh, we're, <laughs> I, I'm all 10 checked off. You know, I've got 10, <laughs> out of 10 here on my commandments checklist. He's really an above average young man already. So it is remarkable that he knows he's lacking something. Right. So then I guess with this, this shift in, in thinking of morality about not just the do's and don'ts, but then it's really about inheriting eternal life, about living the Christian life well, about following Jesus and, and, and entering into a relationship with him. I mean, is this, I'm, I'm, I'm again, not a moral theologian here. I'm asking, is this a, a relatively new shift in the church's understanding? Because it seems like just generally speaking in our culture, morality tends to get a bad rap. And it seems like it's always kind of couched in this do's and don'ts. Um, so I, what, what is the development there in terms of that, that type of thinking, this new way uh, that, that you're proposing here? Well, if we look at the history of moral theology in the church, um, recently with Vatican II, <clears throat> there has been a call to return to scripture and really dig in there richly as a source. And that's just exactly what St. John Paul II did in Veritatis Splendor when he reflected on this encounter with the rich young man. Um, 
but oh, there's so much there. You know, it's really morality is about there's so much about attachment there. You know, when we look at attachment theory and the development of um, of the human person and how they discover themselves as a person. And later, as that develops into discovering your own um, sense of morality and your responsibilities to others, it's really rooted in relationship and attachment. Just think of the first encounter uh, between human persons when they're born. It's the infant in his mother's arms looking at the mother, that gaze between them. That's where it all starts. It's an encounter between persons. So, um, you know, and it's that recognition of the other and their dignity that's really at the heart of all our rules in Catholic morality. It's a recognition of our, um, you know, responsibility to respect the dignity of others. So, yeah, there is really a renaissance over the last um, several decades, you know, going back to Vatican II in reclaiming this in the Catholic tradition and bearing beautiful fruit. Well, now you're speaking my language when you start getting into attachment theory. That's actually what I wrote my doctorate dissertation on. Aww. So, so absolutely, I I ascribe to everything you you just said that in the gaze in in the relationship in love, then uh, there's a response right to to want to take care of the other, and um and in that that that's where we kind of understand what what this means to the, the moral life and and love and and giving of the other person. And that's what Jesus offers the young man, too. He's not saying, well, I've got 10 more rules for you. He's right, saying, right. He's offering this deeper attachment. He's saying, come, follow me. Be with me. You know, live with me. Watch my patterns of life. Be in relationship with me. See how I interact with others. And then integrate that into your own person, into your own way of interacting with others. Amen. Amen. Okay, so if we could bring this down just a couple notches and thinking about family life in the modern context, what what then do we as Christian parents need to do to raise moral children? Well, first thing is, I I mean, I am a huge fan of attachment parenting and attachment theory. So I really think that's important because we're living in a in a society where we are being disconnected more and more in many ways um, from those around us through um you know, new technology and whatnot. So just building relationship, developing trust, intimacy, and connection with your children, that is the foundation for being able to teach them anything, whether it's through what you say or what you do, that you need to have their heart. You need to um, have access, have their trust. So I would say that's the very first step. But then secondly, I think we really do need to be intentional about um, modeling and explicitly teaching with words what's right and wrong. And it starts, you know, little with uh, my seven-year-old right now in her faith formation class. She's learning the Ten Commandments, and I love it, you know. And so I've had my older children as well memorize those. That is really important. And um, and that is a foundation to be built on later when we talk about, um, you know, all the other um uh, implications as far as right and wrong. And, you know, I started with my, 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 I have a 12 year old and 15 year old, a seven year old and a five year old, as we were discussing before we began recording. And with my 12 and 14 year old, when they were young, you know, early grade school aged, um, even would really start to tell them that, you know, there is a right and wrong. And a lot of people today think that wrong things are okay. So just starting to plant that seed, that 
our family, because of our faith, we're going to actually be countercultural and disagree with a lot of people around us about things. So then it comes, you know, it's no big shocker to them later when we have specific moral issues, um, especially around sexuality, that um, right. our approach to this, our, um, our faith and the way that we're going to live is really going to stand in contrast to what they're going to see around them. Yeah. So trying to, to a build that relationship, but then explicitly telling them, you know, kind of helping their, their form, their moral conscience. Um, but then at the same time, I guess also giving them some preparation that, Hey, the, like not everybody thinks the way that we think and preparing them that the world is going to think differently than them and, and that they're going to have to engage with the world and engage with, with different perspectives that, that are out there and just at least preparing them for that. Is that right? Exactly. And always emphasizing that we love everybody and we want to respect everybody, but we're going to have different ideas and especially about right and wrong. So let me, let me share a story here. Uh, I, I have four boys, I have a 14, 10, eight and four year old. And my four year old is, uh, he, he's, well, he's the one that gives me gray hair. I guess we'll just say it that way. Right. He's, <laughs> I love him, but he's, he's the one who thinks he's, you know, 25 already. Um, and has has the whole world figured out. Um, so we, we think we're doing a pretty good job, at least trying to raise them with good moral reasoning and knowing what's right and wrong. And, and at four, that basically amounts to, you know, pick up your room and you know, don't hit your brothers, uh, you know, eat, wash your hands, you know, the basic stuff that he's got to learn. Right? right. So, you know, I guess this was a test of, I don't know how good we're doing or whatever, but uh, last week we were at dinner and in this law in the conversation, Jude, my four-year-old, just pronounces to everybody, ha ha, I ate all the M&Ms. Oh my goodness. <laughs> like, like, and then he goes on and says, and nobody found out, right? Oh. <laughs> so we said, well, what do, you, what do you mean you ate all the M&Ms? And he said, the bag in the closet, right, or whatever, in the pantry, I, I had moved the stool over and went up and ate all the M&Ms out, but kept the bag inside the pantry so nobody would know that the bag was now empty. Oh my <laughs> so, so I walk over to the pantry to, to verify and sure enough, yeah, the bag of M&Ms was empty and he had successfully eaten all the M&Ms without anybody paying attention <laughs> to what he was doing. And he was like proud of himself that he got away with it. So he like shared with everybody. And like, I was like, do I laugh? I'm laughing. I know I'm laughing right now. Am I supposed to laugh? Like, <laughs> I just, I just laughed. But I, I mean, things like that happen, obviously, in terms of moral reasoning or whatever. So it's like, okay, I'm not, this isn't, I'm just going to let this one slide because he's only four. And, I'm, and I think he really knows what's right and wrong here. But, but still, I don't know. It, it was funny. I don't know what else to say. Kids are hilarious. Oh, yeah. Well, I have, I can match you because my um, 15 year old, when she was that age, she would have, I, I needed her to have nap time because I needed a little downtime in the afternoon. <laughs> yeah. One time I woke up from my nap to discover um, this clattering sound from the pantry I found my little daughter standing in front of the pantry with this cascade of chocolate chips. They had fallen <laughs> and were all around her. And she, what was her story? It was something like they, they, they spontaneously leapt out of the pantry <laughs> while she was standing there. Something like that. Just oblivious to the fact that she was damned by the evidence. <laughs> <laughs> so funny. So funny. <laughs> 
I think it's great. And I think it's important to share these stories because sometimes we can get overly scrupulous about like kids got to know everything right and wrong. And, and they have to, we have to hammer these rules in right away because somehow if, if he doesn't know that he's not supposed to eat the, the, the M&Ms or not get to the chocolate chips or whatever it is in the pantry that, um, that somehow we're failing as parents or this, oh, because he ate the M&Ms now, that means he's going to be a, a, a you know, a criminal when he's 18 or so. I don't know. Sometimes parents, we kind of make these, these quick judgments about like a little decision they made now and, and like the, the vast implications that's going to have later in life. Right. Um, so just encouraging people just to relax a little bit and, and enjoy their children. And, oh. and I think people just genuinely are doing better than, than we realize, you know? Yeah. Well, it's lack <laughs> or cry, right? And so laughing is a lot nicer <laughs> for all involved. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. But, but it is true. I mean, we do take seriously our responsibility to to raise our children to know what's right and wrong. And that really at those early stages comes in the form of consequences of having the courage and strength and consistency to help your children understand when they, they do wrong things in the family um, that things you've told them not to do, that they are going to feel and experience some consequences. And then, you know, it's so much easier, um, especially for us worn out parents at the end of the day or whatnot to, to let those things slide, but really backing them up helps them understand how reality works on the moral plane. Um, in our book, the catechism for family life that John Grabowski and I, um, edited together, we pulled out these just wonderful quotes from, um, church documents and um, Pope statements. And I have one here from St. John Paul II from Familiaris Consortio, paragraph 40, um, in, in our section on parenting. And John Paul II says, the family is the primary educating community. Um, and that's just, you know, really, it's in the family that children are going to, to learn, um, you, you know, that, that their actions have consequences that they affect mm -hmm. the people around them. They affect the family, you know, which is their society at, at that point. And that really is what prepares them for, for living as moral persons in their adult. Yeah, absolutely. And, and if you have that relationship with your kids and if you're clear with what the rules and expectations are, there also comes a point where you have to kind of trust that your kids are, are actually getting it. Mm -hmm. And I, I had that moment where my, my oldest, uh, sometime last year, we were talking about making friends and, you know, just kind of, being careful, same thing. You're kind of like, well, you know, just be careful who you hang out with. And that's kind of comment that parents make. And, and so I was saying that to him and he just said very politely, he was like, dad, like, I, I know I've, Aww. I get it. Like you've told us this before and, uh, and I am making good friends. And he didn't say in any way defensive, you know, it was just kind of like, just casually like, Hey, like I got it. And I was like, Oh, great. <laughs> you did listen. <laughs> and I did teach you and it did work. You know, I was kind of more surprised from my end that, that sometimes it actually works out. This is Dr. Mario and you're listening to Always Hope. I'm taking a quick break from my interview with Dr. Sarah Bartel to invite you to like my Facebook page, Dr. Mario Sacasa, or follow me on Instagram at Dr. Mario Sacasa. I hope the show is turning some thoughts Feel free to ask some questions and get a conversation going on any of those platforms. Always with respect and charity, of course. Tangent over. Now let's get back to the show. When thinking about just like raising kids and the challenges that are there, 
Um, what, what do you think are, are some of the just the top challenges that, that we face as parents um, raising kind of kids with a, with a well-formed moral conscience? Um, I would say the top three are the world, the flesh and the devil. And, you know, it's with same, same challenges as for our own spiritual life. They're right there with our kids. You know, it's so I think it's easy to stop with just saying, oh, it's a it's this toxic culture. That's the main challenge. And it really is uh, a huge, um, uh, just huge challenge for us to be facing that all the messages the kids are going to be encountering from the media, from the cool movies, um, you know, from uh, just what's accepted in society, that's going to be working against what we're trying to build up in them. But it's also in ourselves. I have to say, I find one of the top challenges is, is just being that model that they need, you know, being an example for them of, um, of a woman of integrity, a woman who's following Christ at every hour of the day, at every, in every interaction that I have with them. So that's why it just I need grace and strength to do that. I need to be continually forming myself and um, striving for consistency in my own prayer life and spiritual growth so that, um, th- that I can be the mom that they need. And that I can be the Amen. wife that they need, you know, to see me being with my husband. Um, because that relationship is so huge too for their moral formation and just their well-being in every way. Um, just me, just always showing my husband uh, attention, respect, um, affection, all those things. Even when I'm tired, you know, <laughs> even when I'd really rather just go hang out on Facebook for a while and <laughs> not that that they need that. My 15 year old now, she's really into movies and superhero movies, and I have to say that's not where my interest is right now. Um, I really found when I started having children, my tolerance for watching on-screen violence <laughs> was changed a lot. Once I had like a little human being that I was responsible for keeping alive, it was not as entertaining for me to see people blowing each other up <laughs> in action sequences. But my 15-year-old, she's just craving all this, um, you know, she just, for her birthday, she wanted to watch The Matrix and now she wants to watch Terminator. And I'm not that interested in doing that with her, but I know like this is important to her to be, um, to be with her in that so that we can have good discussions with the, about the movies afterwards. Does that make sense? A hundred percent. I think that's a great example of one of the real tensions that families have is because you could take two responses. We could take three responses there. You could be like, well, she can watch the matrix or terminator on her own whatever, just be permissive or you can be overly restrictive and be like, there's no way on God's green earth that we're even watching any of those movies, you know, within a hundred miles of our house. All right. You get it. Or, or you could take the approach that you're taking, which I think is the right one, which is you have to know, I guess the balance between, okay, where, 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 where are my limits of comfort and knowing that my teenager is starting to express and the, and explore the world that we need to give them a little bit of freedom to be able to encounter or interact with these messages to test that moral reasoning, to test that question and say, okay, well, we can watch this movie and let's sift it out. Let's see, let's have a conversation about it. What, what was good about it? What was bad about it? What were the messages that were, that were appropriate? When, it, when did it cross the line? When was it too much for you? And, and having them starting to develop that self-awareness, both at an emotional level and in an intellectual one. Um, that I think that balance is, is just really hard for parents. It is. And you know what I've found as I was studying um, the church's teaching on parenting, on marriage and family life, it's really 
that our duty to be fruitful in our marriages is not just in producing the children with, <laughs> with procreation, that that education, that forming them, you know, helping them all along the way develop into the persons they're called to be. That's just as much as part, part of the fruitfulness that we're called to, um, to pass on to them as actually biologically conceiving and bearing children. So there really is, there's a fruitfulness to education that we're called to. Yeah. And, and there's a place of prayer also. And I know we, we've mentioned this story just a little bit that we're not just talking about reading the documents or reading scripture for an intellectual exercise, but that these are meant to be invitations in prayer. And for us to be able to say, okay, well, this question comes up or the kid is asking me to do something rather than just knee jerk being like, no, let me think about it. Let me take it to prayer. Let me see if this is appropriate. Let me talk with my, my spouse and to see if this is the right time for us to be able to do this. And in, in inviting the Holy Spirit to guide those type of questions um, that sometimes can be, well, not, not quite clear cut. Mm-hmm. Um, so l- let's talk about the book. I, h- how do you feel about it? This, this is your first book. Is that right? It is. It's pretty exciting. Yeah? I have to say. It should be. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was two years in the making and um, it was a fun process to, um, to do the research for it because I just got to... Um, well, John Grabowski and I came up with questions. I think we have 119 questions that span the life cycle of family life from dating, courtship, engagement, and um, the wedding ceremony, uh, sexuality, procreation, family life, uh, work and parenting problems in um, family life, and then divorce, widowhood, you know, the kind of the, the end game there, marriage. And it was with all these questions we developed, then we looked for um, uh, quotes from church documents that could answer them. So just reading through those was just wonderful for me because our church is so full of wisdom and beauty in our teachings. Um, and then, you know, it was a lot of time at the computer shaping it all up and editing and going back and forth with that. And then to actually see, um, to, to hold the book in my hands, it's just such a joy. Such a, yeah, for a first time book mom, I guess, it really is a special, special thing to do that. I, I think it's amazing. I think it's really great. Um, yeah, the book is without a doubt well-researched and, and you do follow that Q&A kind of um, model. What, what inspired you to go in, in that direction? Well, Catholic University of America Press had actually um, published a book, on a catechism for business that used that format. Um, and they found that it was really well-received. People really liked it. And it was a way for a lot of people to access church documents without having to, you know, wade through the whole thing. They could just look to the question that was relevant to them at the moment and, um, and get right there. So they thought, well, let's do this again, but instead let's focus on marriage and family life. So they approached John Grabowski, wonderful professor at Catholic U. He was my professor, my dissertation director, and really a mentor um, for me. And they asked him if he'd like to be involved in it. And then if he could, he could think of a student of his who could help him edit it. Um, and they were especially looking for a woman. So he, um, 
thought of, he suggested me and the press contact me about this. And I was really happy to be able to get involved in it in a way that works with my life. I'm not teaching at a university or seminary right now. I'm home with my kids and doing freelance work and, you know, work uh, kind of around, um, I guess, work at home mom. And so this is the perfect kind of project that I could do um, <laughs> in between being hands-on with my kiddos. And uh, yeah, so that's kind of how the, the idea of the book came to be. That catechism question answer format had already worked well for business. So I thought, let's just do it again with marriage and family life. That's great. Who, who did you have in mind for the book? Uh, uh, DREs, family life coordinators, um, individuals, family members themselves, like to be able to take it and go through the questions and, and try to get uh, a church document answer for? Yeah, well, I've been really involved in marriage preparation through my parish and um, researching marriage prep programs um, to recommend in my diocese. So I thought people who are involved in marriage prep could really use this with their engaged couples. Um, people working at parishes, like you said, DREs, but also, um, you know, it could be used in an academic setting. So if you're teaching a marriage and family class um, in a Catholic university or college or even high school, I think this would be really useful. And then also the just people in the pews, the men and women who are getting married or who are parenting or who are courting um, I know that sounds kind of old fashioned, I guess dating, (laughs) but um, this really applies to everybody because everybody either comes from a family or is being called to form a family or, you know, has had a family and now they're, um, uh, you know, they've, all of us are affected by family life. So, and all of us have questions that come up regarding that. Yeah, that's right. And, and not all those questions are clear cut. And I think you guys explained that very well in the book. And, and even when you offer the quotes that some of them don't necessarily give the, the explicit answer. And I think sometimes we're, we're, we want that manual. We expect everything to just to kind of be, well, here's what you're supposed to do. And, and so going back to our previous conversation that, that the focus of the church really is forming consciences um, through, through scripture, through, through academic formation, but through prayer, being able to, to discern appropriately what the movements of the Lord are in, in my own life. Um, because, but, but sometimes we're, we're, we're surprised when, when, when there aren't answers that are as clear cut as, as we would like them to be. That's exactly right. You know, a lot of these questions do have a nice clear cut answer. One of the most, you know, I think one of the most frequently asked questions by engaged couples is, can I get married on the beach? And they're, the answer is no. And then we give the reasons why, because, you know, the church sees marriage in the context of um, the community of faith and it's sacred and needs to be in a sacred space. Um, but a lot of times the answers are not so clear cut and it does take a process of discernment. And that's what we explicitly mention in the book that if we don't have a quote from church te- documents or, um, you know, a dicastery or whatnot that explicitly answers this question, we have quotes that can provide you the principles through which you can go through a process of discernment and, um, you know, hopefully arrive at an answer through that process. And um, we did also outline a discernment process tool in the beginning of the book that can be used, you know, um, through uh, prayer, study, seeking holy counsel, um, that you can, you know, grapple with whatever difficult question it is that um, someone might be facing. 
You know, in, in my counseling practice, I, I I work with a lot of couples who who are Catholic and love and ascribe to the church's teachings, particularly um, that of contraception. Mm-hmm. But they they really do struggle with the the question of what's a grave reason um, in terms of spacing children, or if I'm because I'm Catholic, does that mean I'm supposed to have ten kids? And and of course, the answer is is no, right? That like you you have to be able to make those decisions based on your own circumstances, but. But it's really hard for people sometimes to know, am I just being, are we at a good place in terms of how many kids we have or, or where, where are we at in terms of, you know, just our family life? But the, you know, outside of some guidelines there, obviously contraception's off the table. There's, there's clear more reasoning for that. But in terms of the number of kids or the spacing of the children, the, the church, you know, gives a lot of freedom for couples to be able to discern for themselves what, what is, um, what's appropriate for their family life. I think, oh, that's, I'm so glad you brought that up because I found that too, not just um, in ministry, but among my own friends, you know, among other moms in mom's groups and co-ops who, like you say, they love the church teaching and um, want to be faithful about specifically avoiding contraception, but the, but they're struggling with, do I then have this responsibility to like have as many children as re- as humanly possible or like what, what is a good enough or serious or grave reason for using uh, natural family planning to abstain. And I think, um, yeah, I think that there needs to be more discussion and guidance about that. And just, I think reassurance too, like you said that um, you don't have to be on death's door to have serious enough reason to <laughs> avoid <laughs> Right, right. <laughs> family planning. I think sometimes there's that thought, um, especially among real traditional Catholics, um, that like, you know, you have to be plagued by the serious illness or bankrupt or whatnot. But there really is, you know, a great reverence for the discernment of the couple in prayer with God to um, to look at their own circumstances and the circumstances of the other children in the family and, um not no motivated by selfishness, but with a generous heart, you know, reasonably noting, you know, when is a good reason, a good time to avoid. And, and the really is quite broad, you know, the inhumane vitae, I'm trying to find the quote right here. Oh, okay. You mind if I read it? I love quotes. Go ahead. You got it. So this is humane vitae 16. Paul the six writes, if then there are serious motives to space out births, which derive from the physical or psychological conditions of husband and wife, or from external circumstances, the church teaches that it is then licit to take into account the natural rhythms imminent in the generative functions. So psychological reasons are mentioned here, physical and external conditions, you know, that could mean financial conditions. And like in my own life, uh, my husband and I have, have seen a great variety of these. There was a time when he was unemployed and we really felt like that was serious reason for avoiding at that time. And then after my fourth daughter was born, I had uh, postpartum anxiety and really was struggling to kind of get on top of that for a few months. And thanks be to God, I got great treatment and, um, you know, did feel a lot better, um, definitely by a year after her birth. But during that time, again, we were like, well, (laughs) let's take care of my health before we actively try to invite more children into the family. Absolutely. Those are just great examples. God bless you guys. Thank you for sharing that. Um, because even what you said earlier about fruitfulness, not just being like, like the only way somehow we, we measure how fruitful our marriage is, is by how many kids we have. And, and 
I'm not sure if that's necessarily the right way of, of looking at that. The way you said it was great about the way we fruitfulness extends throughout the life of the child and how we're raising them to be good Christian individuals, people who love the Lord and, and then can give of their lives freely, that we have to take all of that into consideration when it comes to how many kids we want to have, how many kids do we feel that we're capable of being able to welcome into the world, into our environment, how many we can take care of, um, not just financially, but, but all of that. And then also looking into those circumstances you said about psychological health or job situations. Um, and so the best that the church can do is to say, listen, these are circumstances there, but I think what you, what you recommended is, you know, stay close to spiritual counsel and, uh, be with somebody who who can help guide you as you're trying to make this decision, um, but but rest assured that the church supports and at the end of the day gives you freedom. Um, I think even in Kasi Kenobi it says something like, um, "While certainly God is the author of marriage, God invites couples to be authors of their own marriage. Um, that there is a freedom that's given to the couple um, because their relationship is unique and unrepeatable." That's beautiful. Yes, absolutely. And what you said um, makes me think of a couple different things regarding fruitfulness in marriage. It is a moral and spiritual fruitfulness as well. And look at the marriage of St. Joseph and Our Lady was abundantly fruitful (laughs) through just one child that was in that household. But, um, you know, sometimes I think Catholic uh, parents will feel... um, you know, they'll, they'll see these great big Catholic families around them and then see their one or two children or three and, and think, oh, you know, I, I thought we were going to have more and I'm, I'm disappointed. And it's really not a numbers game. It's really about, you know, just that fruitfulness of love, the spiritual, moral fruitfulness there. Uh, there's a great um, blessed who I got to know when I did my study abroad in France in college. Um, I happened to be there in, what was it, 90s? Seven and 98. <laughs> I'll give people a clue at how old I am. But I was there when St. John Paul II came for World Youth Day in Paris. And during his time there, he beatified a layman, a married layman, Frederick Ozanam, Frederic Ozanam, who is the founder of the St. Vincent de Paul Society. And he was a professor of law and literature. And he and his wife had just one daughter. And, you know, there again, it was just, it was, wasn't about numbers. It was about the, the holiness and the love of that household. Two things. One, first, I, I really hope that what you just said really blesses people because I, again, in my social circles as well, I've, I've hear people who, yeah, maybe they have one and then for infertility issues kind of start coming in and they do, they feel that guilt or they feel that, that pain that they thought their life was going to look different or they thought they're going to have more kids. And, and just to be a Right. To offer your grief first and foremost to the Lord and recognizing that God desires to be present with you in that. Um, but then also just, just letting those comparisons or those expectations go to some degree and to allow the fruitfulness that God is inviting your marriage to, uh, to, to, to do that. And, um, and, and God will bless that with, with however many kids you have or if you don't have any kids, if, if, if that's the, the state of, of your life. Thanks for listening to Always Hope. Please support the Faith and Marriage Apostle of the Willards community by heading over to our website, faithandmarriage.org, where you can find great resources for yourself or ways that we can serve your parish through speaking engagements, parish missions, or retreats.
Another question I want to ask is because because the book is so well researched and because you guys read in quote so many different um, statements by by the popes, the the dicasteries. Um, was there any statement or any any quote in here that that surprised you uh, as you were doing the research? Well, I think one of the surprises for me was looking back through Costi Canubi from the 1920s and just seeing how you know that some of the language is a little old-fashioned for our ear, but just again seeing how very relevant and prophetic that document was. So I think that was kind of a, a nice discovery was that, you know, Kasi Kanubi really deserves a nice second look and reread from for families today. I enjoyed that. What specifically, what specifically stood out uh, from that document? Mm, let me try to find one. Yeah, and it's really beautiful. Okay, I found a quote here. This is from Kasi Kanubi, um, <laughs> paragraphs 40 and 41. And in our book, this is on pages 25 and 26. Um, so, quote, Pius XI is saying, nevertheless, since it is a law of divine providence in the supernatural order that men do not reap the full fruit of the sacraments which they receive after acquiring the use of reason unless they cooperate with grace, the grace of matrimony will remain for the most part an unused talent hidden in the field unless the parties exercise these supernatural powers and cultivate and develop the seeds of grace they have received. If, however, doing all that lies with their power, they cooperate diligently they will be able with ease to bear the burdens of their state and to fulfill their duties. By such a sacrament, they will be strengthened, sanctified, and in a manner, consecrated. I mean, what a beautiful vision of marriage as a path to sanctity. Even back then, you know, that, that just married people can achieve great holiness, that we have a responsibility to dig up that hidden treasure in the field. And I love that scriptural image there that he has. Um, that it's it's there, the grace is there in our marriage, but we really need to actively engage and cooperate with it. And that doing so brings great blessing for living out these challenges in marriage and family life that, you know, we've, you and I have been talking about a bit during our conversation. Amen. Amen. And I think that's a great reminder that grace is, is there within the sacrament of, of our union and that God, God wants us to call upon that. And even in the teaching of divorce, you were saying earlier, I mean, like the apostles basically are like, who can live this, man? And if you're saying that if those are the conditions you're setting forth, like who can do it? And Jesus basically is like, well, you can't. <laughs> I mean, like, like you need grace to be able to, to live it. And I think like we talked about earlier with just culture and, and I thought that was really very well done that you said you don't want to just blame it on the culture in terms of the challenges that of parents. It's like, oh, the culture's toxic or whatever. I mean, what culture in the history of humanity wasn't toxic. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not like, it's not like there was like some, like an era that existed where like everything was just better um, because concupiscence has reigned since, you know, since the fall. Um, and grace is always there to, to make up for those deficiencies. And so whatever the particular challenges that we're facing in our modern context are, are unique to our era, certainly, but the, the, the methods that we need to succeed in living and succeed in parenting are, are the timeless truths. Uh, loving our kids, uh, forming their conscience as well, uh, bringing the Holy Spirit in, into our environment, into our homes, modeling for them what good love looks like, what good relationship looks like. And, and if we just do those basics uh, and stick to those fundamentals, um, then we have to leave the rest to God that, that he's going to work in our children um, the way that he sees fit. 
Absolutely. Yes. And just mixing in a whole lot of a prayer too. prayer, <laughs> personal prayer, prayer with the, uh, your spouse, prayer with the children, family prayer, because, you know, that's I, I like the image of grace that we receive in the sacraments as like the chocolate syrup that you pour into the cup of milk when you want to make chocolate milk. So it's all just going to puddle there at the bottom. It's present but it's not activated until we take the spoon in and stir it up. And for me, a prayer is just that spoon that, <laughs> that calls on and activates the grace that's there in our sacraments um, to help give us that pleasing flavor, you know, to, to make us more that um, living the identity that we're called to. So I think that's something that parents who really want to form their children well in the faith, that's something within our reach. You know, you don't have to... Um, don't have to do a whole lot of study in order to, to pray. We all know our basic Catholic prayers and we all know how to speak. Um, so we can pray spontaneously um, with our kids, you know, throughout the day, at the beginning and end of the day, maybe for, you know, picking them up from school or whatnot. But I think that's really what makes a difference for kids growing up in a Catholic household between just growing up like, you know, those people that you meet that say, oh, yeah, I was raised Catholic but they're not practicing the faith now or those who right. are really just, you know, living their faith as adults. I think it has a lot to do with how much the faith shows up in prayer in discussion and activities throughout the whole week, aside from just Sunday morning. Well, I want to go get some chocolate milk now. Yeah. It just made me hungry for chocolate milk. Thanks, Sarah. Good thing we're not doing this during Lent, right? Yeah, yeah, good thing. Good thing. Exactly. Um, so a couple, couple final questions here as we're kind of bringing the interview to a close. I, I've loved it. So thank you so much for, for joining me on the show. Oh. But uh, what I anything else you'd like to plug? I got the book. Um, how can people get it? Uh, anything else you want to talk about your radio show or any other good things you're, you're doing out there in the Archdiocese of Seattle? Oh, that's so kind of you. Well, yeah, please do. I would encourage everyone to get the book. Um, Al Cresta talked to John Grabowski on his radio show um, a couple weeks ago, and he said he thinks every Catholic parish should have this book. Every priest should be recommending it to <laughs> their parishioners. Um so it is just a great resource. And that that is just what it is. You know, when you have your questions, you can look them up in the book and, and have it. So, you know, as you're talking with your kids, why do we have to have a wedding in the church? Um, why can't we get married on a mountaintop? Or I don't know, in Louisiana, do, do people like bayou weddings? I'm not sure what. <laughs> we definitely don't have mountaintops nor beaches here in New Orleans. So every, everything pretty much is done at the church. <laughs> oh, see, you guys are so good. Um, so you can get the book from Amazon. And if you do, I would just kindly ask any motivated listeners who get the book, would they be so kind as to possibly consider leaving a review on Amazon? Because that would help make it more visible for other people to see. It helps the, the log algorithms um, as, as Amazon presents this to viewers. And then you can also get the book from CUA Press. You go to their website. You can find a way to get it. And yes, I do have a, a radio show as well called Enduring Love Radio. And we were so happy to have you on it um, when we recorded. And we'll be posting our archives, um, you know, as uh, as the weeks go on. And um, I have a website, drsarahbartell.com. So invite listeners to come check out my work there. I write a monthly column 
for Northwest Catholic Magazine, and I've won some awards from that, from the Catholic Press Association. So love to invite listeners to come and read my columns and stay connected that way as well. And I'm on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at drsarahbartell.com. Sarah with an H, Bartell with one L. Fantastic. So they can get the book, they can listen to your radio, they can read your blog. A uh, lot, lot of great resources for, for the listeners to, to be able to, to access. Um, so final question uh, that I've asked all my guests. Cool. Uh, Dr. Sarah Bartell, what gives you hope? Oh, Christ is our hope. I just... That's such a great question. I just have great hope because, you know, I would say... Um, one thing that really sustains me, even when things look dark in the world or the church, was John Paul II's prophecy that there would be a great springtime for Christianity in the third millennium. So I keep looking for signs of spring. And the more I look, the more I find them. Like um, I, maybe you've seen the uh, sexual revolution movie. Um, there's a uh, you know, trailer for that is online. And that was actually, I think one of the companies involved in that is called Springtime Productions. And I was like, yay, there's another sign of spring. So I really believe that is a true prophecy on the part of our late Holy Father, that there will be a new springtime for Christianity in this millennium. And we all get to be part of it. So that gives me great hope. Amen. Amen. Well, let us all look for spring times in, in our life and in our circumstances. Uh, thank you so much for joining me on, on the podcast today. And I hope that you have a, a wonderful, awesome rest of your day. Oh, thank you so much. It's been great talking with you. God bless all you listeners. I will say a special prayer for you all today. And um, yeah, it's been a great conversation. Thank you so much. You're so welcome. Amen. Parents, be encouraged. Raising your children is no small task, but trust in God's grace. If you are facing a particular moral quandary, please reach out to your local parish priest or some other trusted advisor for counsel. Don't feel like you have to go it alone. God always raises up people around us to help us and to support us, and don't be afraid to reach out if you have certain questions. Thanks for listening to the show. God bless and have a great day. Thank you.